Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the uh, video podcast conversation for Multi-Faith Matters, and I'm privileged today to have as my guest, uh, David Livingston Smith. I've uh, appreciated uh, his work in the past. Uh, I've read one of his prior books, and I'll be talking about that in just a moment. We're going to be talking today about content from uh, his most recent book, On Inhumanity, and I'm going to read uh, his bio from the inside cover of that. Uh, David Livingston Smith is professor of philosophy at the University of New England in Bidford, Maine. He has written or edited nine books, including On Inhumanity, including Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others, that was published by St. Martin's Press in 2011. And it was that prior book that first put uh, David on my radar, and I was excited to see his uh, follow-up volume, uh, On Inhumanity. And today we're going to talk to him about dehumanization in the context of evangelicals and multi-faith engagement, uh, primarily in the American context. David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, John. Thank you for having me here. Uh, let's begin by defining our subject matter. What do, we, what do you mean by dehumanization? Yeah, so the, the word dehumanization entered the English language uh, in the early 19th century, around 1819. And it's used to mean lots and lots of different things. Uh, so if you, you know, if you Google it, you'll find mi literally millions of, of hits. And then if you go to those, you'll find that the word is used in lots of different ways. Sometimes we use it just to describe something that we think is wrong or bad, um, wrong treatment or bad treatment of others, or the use of certain sorts of slurs and so on. I use the word dehumanization in a very particular way, which is to refer to a kind of attitude. And that attitude is looking down on others as less than human creatures. So you're sort of expelling them from the, the category of the human and, and thinking of them as, as subhumans. Now, viewers may be wondering why we're talking about this topic in the context of multi-faith encounters with evangelicals. Uh, just by way of background, uh, I mentioned before you and I started uh, this conversation here in the podcast that I did uh, five years worth of grant research through the Louisville Institute, and two of those years included looking at social psychology and social neuroscience. And during that process, it was dehumanization that showed up on the radar for me, and uh, I was intrigued. And I think this needs to be a part of the broader evangelical conversation. So my hope is that whether you're a pastor or just somebody sitting in the pew, that we can look at this uncomfortable topic and realize how it is a problem in our society uh, and for evangelicals and other Christians, not just in the past, but in the present. So I appreciate you being here to help us unpack that and having to find it for us. Can you uh, talk a little bit about how uh, you got involved in this subject of studying and researching and writing on it. Now two books on the subject. Yeah, well, that has two sides. 
So one side has to do with my, my personal history, my history as a human being. Uh, I grew up in the Deep South in the 1950s and 60s. My parents moved from New York uh, to Southwest Florida, which back in the day was, was really Deep South culturally. And uh, this was a, a world in which I didn't quite fit in. Um, so if I can give you a little bit of background. Sure. My, my mother uh, was, was Jewish. Her parents were Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe. My father came from an old Southern missionary family. In fact, he was born to missionaries in Brazil. So this, this world of the Deep South was quite comfortable for him, less comfortable for my mother. Now, this was the days of segregation. There was brutal racism all around. And it was not something you had to, you know, infer the existence of. It was quite blatant and explicit. Um, and, and as a little kid, I had to make sense of this. Like, and as a child, you know, when you see a sign on the beach saying dogs and Negroes not allowed, it, it, it just seems wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Just seems wrong. Now, in that, that task of understanding this world uh, was greatly helped by my, grand, my maternal grandparents. So my maternal grandparents would come and visit us in the summers in Florida. They lived in New York and eventually moved down. So I spent a lot of my childhood in this extended family with my maternal grandparents. And my grandmother in particular was a brilliant, self-educated woman. Now, although she had to leave school at around the age of 14 to, to work to help support herself and her brothers, she, uh, she, she was just astonishing. And one thing she knew a great deal about are some of the darker sides of history, the history of anti-Semitism, of the extermination of Native Americans and the brutal oppression of African Americans. And she explained a lot of that to me. And so, you know, as I grew and I eventually stumbled into being a philosopher, uh, I carried that experience with me. Now, that's the one of the two sides. The other side is I, I was working on a book around about uh, 2006 on war and human nature called The Most Dangerous Animal. And when I was working on that book, I came across all this wartime propaganda, dehumanizing propaganda, propaganda that presented the enemy not as a fellow human being, but as vermin or dangerous predators or things of that nature. And I discovered that this phenomenon, dehumanization, was really not dealt with anywhere much outside of social psychology. And I was not entirely satisfied with what the social psychologists were saying about it. So a friend convinced me to write a book and that was my, my 2011 Less Than Human book, which was the first single-authored book, I think still, well, now one of two single-authored books on dehumanization. 
in the English language. And I've been studying it ever since because I think it's, you know, dehumanization is bound up with the most terrible things we do to other human beings. We look at genocide, we look at war, we look at the atrocities that unfortunately human beings have perpetrated on one another and which litter our history. Dehumanization is very, very often a significant contributing factor. Um, so I'm still on it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of work to be done and it's work which is becoming increasingly pressing and serious mm -hmm. given the trajectory that the world is taking. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Well, you've defined it for us. It's moved from the more abstract to the more concrete to give people some examples to get their, their minds around. Can, can you share a few examples historically of dehumanization, sure. things that people may be familiar with and, and maybe they're not? Sure. Um, so let me give you two examples. One, uh, in the, at least in the aspect I'm going to describe it, a little bit distant in history, but not in geography. And the other happening now. So the first one, which I use a lot as an example when I'm talking about humanization, is the attitudes of many white Americans to black Americans, particularly black American men, uh, in the aftermath of the failure of reconstruction in the late 19th century. So, you know, reconstruction, basically federal troops move into the South to protect the enslaved people who were now freed, at least ostensibly. Uh, and a deal was struck, uh, the outcome of a contested presidential election and that led to the federal troops leaving and it led to black people in the south being effectively re-enslaved through various means uh, now during this period now from let's say well the first let's say from 1890 into well up into the 20th century lynching was widely practiced three quarters of the victims of lynching were were black people lynched by white people and lynching is something which most americans don't quite understand because they're normally exposed to how it's presented in the movies and on tv and that's very very sanitized so what lynching really involved almost always was bodily mutilation hours of torture and, and then execution. Now, I've, my research focuses on what's called spectacle lynchings. Spectacle lynchings were lynchings attended by uh, thousands of spectators. They were treated as festive occasions. Whole families would come to watch a human being being tortured for hours and then typically well, not necessarily typically, but very often burnt alive at the end. Um, and I, I can't stress too much how these were regarded as, as festivals. In fact, one scholar has compared them to uh, rituals of human sacrifice. Um, schools were closed, bars were closed, railroad companies laid on extra trains to transport spectators. Um, body parts were taken as souvenirs and sometimes handed down in a family for generations. 
uh, pro professional photographers were on hand to photograph the event, and these were photographs were sold as postcards. Uh, it, it's horrible beyond belief. Um, what interests me is how these events were described and how they were represented in the press, particularly the Southern press, but not exclusively the Southern press. So they were described often as barbecues. So when a human being was burned to death, it was a barbecue. And that tells us right away that the victim is seen as less than human. Mm -hmm. But in the, uh, in the press, we find the victims described as monsters, as beasts, and very often as, de as demonic beings, as monsters and demons and fiends and so on. So there's an image of, of the victim as less than human, as subhuman. And see, that has a function that has, and this is so important, um, the way I think about dehumanization is in relation to a feature of human nature. And that is that it's actually not that easy for us to do this sort of harm to others. We have inner obstacles. Um, that's part of being a human being. Um, so you know, to look into someone eye, someone's eyes and kill them is, is very, very hard to, and, and for most people, if they're in a position where they have to do that, it, 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 it harms them, it haunts them for a lifetime. Uh, there are always a few that don't care. Um, so dehumanization is a way that human beings have developed over thousands of years to sort of short circuit that response that prevents us from doing these sorts of things to our fellow human beings, right? So in, in, then in presenting uh, black people, particularly black men as less than human beings, what that did was it freed people up to perform these acts. And, and legitimated them. I mean, if they're monsters and demons, it's our responsibility to, to dispatch them, right? Mm -hmm. They're evil, they're, they're bad to the bone, they're evil beings. And that's very, very often how dehumanization works. And certainly the most toxic forms of dehumanization, which I call demonizing dehumanization, we find these elements in, in place. So, so that's, that's one. And, you know, this image of the demonic uh, person, the demonic black man has, you don't have to use the word demon to demonize someone. Right. So nowadays it's often cast in the form of criminality, essentially criminal people. That's like a secular version of, of demon and demonic. So, the, the other example I wanted to give was the, uh, the genocide in Myanmar. Um, and this, this genocide or ethnic cleansing, some people prefer to call it, in, involved all of the atrocities that we associate with, um, with genocide. You know, torture, whole scale murder, rape, 
and and the movement of populations you know so refugees moving into these terrible refugee camps the largest in the world it's people from from myanmar um and and this was largely perpetrated by militant buddhist monks so i i know because i'm speaking to evangelicals i want to emphasize that religion doesn't keep you from getting your hands dirty here mm -hmm. So in the American South, it was, you know, overwhelmingly Christian, right? The, the, right. the South then, as now, is overwhelmingly Christian. In Myanmar, it's, it was it was and is radical Buddhist monks, who um, dehumanized the Muslim minority. So in Myanmar, the the westernmost state of Myanmar is called Rakhine State. And there's a long historical backstory, which I won't bore you with. Uh, it's, it's largely Muslim. And, um, and Buddhist monks have promoted the idea that Muslims are demonic, they're murderous, they're rapists, they're, you know, it's the same old story. We find it again and again and again and again. But also they're, they're subhuman. They breed like... Uh, an invasive species of carp. They, um, they are reincarnations of vermin, and so on and so on and so on. So in both cases, we have the dehumanization of others as a sort of greasing the wheels of cruelty and atrocity. I appreciate you sharing those examples. Unfortunately, you could have cited many more and I, I, yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that uh, religion often does play a part. It can be used as a legitimating factor, including for Christianity. I think uh, the Christian and evangelical audience needs to wrestle with that and come to grips with that and stop and ask ourselves, how have we not lived up to the highest ideals of our own religious tradition? And how can we do that when dehumanizing, uh, dehumanization comes about? So let's shift to consideration of Christian history. And a little bit more and how that has taken place. Um, can you share some examples historically of how oh, sure. you know, I've done I'll, that I'll, with Jews and, and so on? Can you speak to that? Sure. Um, I'll, give, I'll give an extended example. Okay. And, but I, I first just would like to respond to something that you said, sure. you know, how can uh, Christians whose ideals are very different become embroiled in this sort of practice? Well, mm -hmm. the answer is very simple. Christians are human beings. Mm -hmm. And as human beings, we are vulnerable to this way of thinking. We're, we're, all, we're all cracked vessels, right? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, we, 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 we are unable to elevate ourselves beyond the human condition. So that's something we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so... Uh, this is an example I developed very extensively in my next book, which uh, the publisher now is wanting to play around with the title, but the title will probably be called Making Monsters. And this has to do with uh, Christian anti-Semitism, or rather the history of anti-Semitism in Europe and, and beyond. So... Um, and, and please, you know, cut me off if I'm going into too much historical detail. So uh, early on, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. And whereas Christians had been persecuted before this point, 
by pagans. At this point, it starts shifting around and Christians start persecuting pagans. Now, Jews have a very peculiar position in this world uh, because Jews aren't pagans, but they're not Christians. And they have a particular relationship. Judaism has a particular relationship to Christianity. Um, so the really influential person in this early period was, was Augustine of Hippo, known to Catholics, of course, as St. Augustine. And he, he argued that Jews should not be persecuted. They should be allowed to practice their religion, unlike pagans. Um, but what the heck? Something just fell. Pardon me. That's okay. Okay. What was it? It sounded like it was back in your room. I was talking to my wife there. Okay. Um, okay, so... Um, uh, but but live in a in a condition of degradation, right? And, and so the idea of preserving Jews was it would make good propaganda for converting pagans because it kind of testified to the historical bona fides of Christianity. So the relationship between Jews and Christians was pretty stable for a very very long time, um, and whatever you know, there were some very anti-Semitic. Uh, fathers of the church, but it probably really didn't affect relations between ordinary people, neighbor and neighbor and so on. This begins, begins to change at the end of the 11th century with the first crusade. Um, um, you know, there were three waves of crusaders that went east to win back the Holy Land for Christianity from the Muslims. And the third of that wave decided, well, we'll kill the infidel within and slaughtered lots of Jews. Many Jews committed suicide rather than fall into the hands of, of the crusaders. Uh, then, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of jumping over a lot of history, but the crucial period of history here is actually the 14th century. There had been growing racialization of Jews in Europe, mostly as a grassroots movement. So on the whole, the church made efforts to protect Jews, but there was a grassroots movement within Christianity, which they started to see Jews as an alien race, as maybe subhuman, that all sorts of beliefs like Jews had tails and they, they exuded a foul smell. And, and as it developed, were satanic in league with the devil and so on and this really really got bad with the bubonic plague uh, pandemic of the middle of the 14th century the jews were accused of being in league with muslims and trying to destroy christianity by poisoning the water supplies and that was the cause of the plague and this is when the so-called blood libel really really took off it was an older idea but Christians developed the idea that Jews engaged in human sacrifice, in particular, kidnapped Christian children, drained them of their blood, and mixed the blood with the matzah dough for the annual Passover meal. So this led to endless persecution. Uh, and, and in one form or another, persisted. Now, this is very, very important. So initially, you know, the demonic Jew was fundamentally a religious, 
lightly toned idea in Christian Europe. Of course, in the Middle Ages, uh, religion saturated everything, right? Um, but it persisted and then was revived. It was revived by uh, proto-fascist groups um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, one of which was the National Socialists. So the, the Nazis were in the aftermath of, it was really the aftermath of World War I, mm -hmm. when populations were really under stress. You know, Germany had been brought to its knees, was paying terrible reparations to France and the rest of the world. Uh, many, many, many young men were, were dead or, or, or incapacitated from the war. And then there was the flu pandemic, right, sweeping through Europe. It was a terrible time. And when, when times are bad like that, these sorts of racist and humanizing ideologies start getting traction because people look for someone to blame. And so all of these medieval um, ideas were revived in Nazi propaganda. So Hitler in Mein Kampf talks about Jews as a plague. I mean, it's a, it's a revival of the bubonic plague charge. Uh, the, the, he talks about the Jewish disease. In Nazi speeches, you can see Jews as being described quite overtly as demonic, you know, enemies of everything good and decent. And of course, then Jews became associated in Nazi propaganda with vermin, with disease-carrying vermin, with rats and with lice and with typhus. Um, so there's that whole trajectory which begins it's very important it begins with religious ideology and then it spreads it proliferates in in a in a more secular context in the um in the 20th century and beyond because these ideas which originated way back then uh within a christian framework at least an ostensibly christian framework are, are still very much alive, right? Once these things get rooted, you see, they don't go away very easily. So during the same period, from, from like the late 11th century, we also have the demonization of Muslims by Christians, right? Because all this stuff really starts with the first crusade, mm. right? Um, and there, the, the literature is not as extensive, at least the literature that I have pursued, but Muslims are explicitly um, sometimes described as monstrous beings, monstrous evil beings. They're demonized. And of course, a lot of that stuff, unfortunately, is still around. So these, these groups of people with different religious practices and convictions are all too often conceived of and represented as evil, evil, demonic or quasi-demonic beings. I, that that yeah, can often lead to bloodshed. I think all of that is, is tremendously important to reflect upon. I think the idea of the monstrosity of the other, the religious other, mm -hmm. is tremendously important. I work... Uh, 
not only in interreligious conflict, but also monster theory, monster studies. In mm-hmm. fact, I'm uh, one of the co-editors for the peer-reviewed uh, Journal of Gods and Monsters. And uh, I would love to see a book that was done, maybe your book will be a step in that direction, that brings together monster theory and interreligious conflict and dehumanization. Mm. And it's important to remember that uh, this is not just something that happened in the past. As a part of my grant research, we looked at metaphors that evangelicals were using to talk about religious others. And I'll just mention a few of those. If folks are interested, they can uh, request a copy of this. Pat Robertson on the 700 Club referred to uh, Muslims as a pathogen and infection. Uh, Again, Pat Robertson talked about uh, Buddhists as a mild contagion Mm. we should stay away from. Janet Mefford on her show, Janet Mefford Today in 2012, in response to a Sikh giving a prayer at a Republican political gathering, uh, referred to that as a syncretism that is kind of seeping under the door like a gas, so in poison. Mm. Uh, Don Richardson, an evangelical author, referred to the Quran in its version, version as a uh, a food an assassin adds to poison as a disguise to disguise a deadly taste. We could go yeah. on and on. So yeah. there's the metaphors of disease, contagion, and then to connect with, to what you just said uh, a few moments ago, there's both the metaphor of the demonic and literal demonization. Uh, Reverend yes. Harry Vines on CNN in uh, 2002, Islam was founded by Muhammad, a demon-possessed pedophile who had 12 wives. So there's a literal demonization of the religious others. So these are all things within the, the broader evangelical Christian mm. uh, social media so kind of thing. That, that language, I mean, I hate to say it, but that language could come right out of Mein Kampf. Mm. It really could. There's a wonderful book by a scholar named Felicity Rush, R-A-S-H, about the, the metaphors in Mein Kampf. Mm. And you can just look that. I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's indistinguishable. And that's, that's scary stuff. Yeah. So one, uh, of the, one of the concerns I have is that we then, as evangelicals, uh, take these metaphors and they become a part of the, of the theology, the way in which we baptize, if you will, um, negative attitudes, which paves the way for negative actions towards religious others. Sure, sure. Yeah, so these are not just ways of talking. They're not just ways of talking. You know, if you use that sort of language, it encourages people to conceive of the other as, as less than human and as dangerously less than human. Um, look, here's something that's really important, I think, for all of us to understand that by and large, the architects of genocide genocidal violence and similar forms of violence think of themselves as doing good they think of themselves as ridding the world of evil Um, so having moral convictions isn't always a safeguard against performing profoundly devastatingly immoral actions and you know you don't have to spill blood to harm people. You can contribute to an atmosphere in which people are, in which blood is spilled, or an atmosphere in which people are diminished and they're 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 inwardly hurt. Um, and that that comes very very easy to us. So I think it's it's very very extraordinarily important 
for evangelicals, but not only evangelicals, for all of us, right? I'm an atheist. Um, it's just as important for me as it is to, to those whom I'm addressing now. Mm-hmm. To, to understand that as mere human beings, we are vulnerable to falling into these ways of talking and these ways of thinking, and therefore vulnerable to perpetrating harm, and perpetrating wrong. We've only got just a couple more minutes here with the time limitations of Zoom. Can you just take a couple of minutes and, and maybe add on what, uh, expand a little bit? How can we be more aware of our dehumanization and take steps to rehumanize others? Okay, so here's the, here's the first thing. <laughs> Monsters aren't real. <laughs> Monsters are fictional, right? When you start thinking of others as monsters, you know you're on fiction land. You're in fiction land. And even people who do terrible things, I mean, we're inclined to talk about Hitler as a monster, Stalin as a monster. No, they're not monsters, they're human beings. And I think the proper attitude towards them is to gaze into the mirror they hold up to us of what we are capable of. More broadly, we need to understand history properly and it's not taught properly because all of us whoever we are our ancestors have blood on their hands um no no group of people is immune from that and once you recognize that you recognize that it's possible for us to do this again and again and again um so there's a an, an inward looking and a commitment to recognizing our own vulnerability to dehumanizing ways of thinking. And part of that is understanding how our minds work that allows us to do these things. And I talk about that in the book. And the other is outward looking. To, to, to not to be tolerant of this kind of destructive rhetoric which incites people to violence. To not be, to call out dangerous speech in one's own community mm-hmm. as well as in the community of others. You know? And, you know, be as morally committed to rectifying problems in one's own group as one is to rectifying those problems in the world at large. Unfortunately, we're out of time. David, uh, I appreciate it. I'm going to include a link to your fine book uh, in the description for this podcast. We also include it on our recommended book list at Multifaith Matters on our website. Thank you as we try to address uh, key challenges to evangelicals as relate as we relate to a, a multi-faith world. Uh, again, I thank you so much for your work. And, and thank you for your work. This is very important work you're doing. Great. Thank you so much, David. Okay. Bye-bye now.